Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Chapter 23. I'm just going to give you a pastor's surgeon general warning this morning. In case you decide to look at your watch, we will go long. And that's okay because I've got the microphone and um, I've got God's word. So um, we want to explore the scriptures this morning. Many, many of you may have remembered the frightening events that happened to our team about three years ago when we went to Nicaragua on a mission trip. We came back and reported that. Many who are in this room this morning I can give you in vivid detail what happened to us when we went to a remote village in Nicaragua to do medical missions. It was time for us to pack up and leave and to go back, seven-hour bus ride through the mountains back to our missionary compound, and we got word that the Sandinistan rebels had basically taken over a town, and they'd set up a blockade, and they weren't allowing anybody in or anybody out, and so we were supposed to have this military escort come and take us, and it was this little guy on a jeep, and we're like, that's a great military escort, and so our three buses and our two trucks get up to the town and we start seeing sacrificed um, cows on the side of the road. And then we get up to the blockade and they say, don't just look straight ahead, keep your windows up, don't make eye contact. I was in the first bus about two seats behind the driver and to my left-hand side, probably about where those, like where Doug and Mo and those guys are sitting down there, were about 200 Sandinistan rebels in bandanas with machetes and machine guns. And we're sitting there and all of a sudden, two guys walk on the bus, and they start looking us over, and gringos. And I, uh, the, thought, the, the thought in my head, the worst thing that could happen is they would take the women and do some unspeakable things. And the other thought was that we would all be taken hostage. And so in that moment, there was great fear. But yet in that moment, there was a great calm because the Lord brought to my remembrance the story in Second Kings chapter 6. Do you remember the story where Israel is surrounded by the huge army? And Elijah's servant kind of goes crazy, kind of freaks out. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 17, you don't need to turn there, I think it'll be on your screen. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. In that moment, I knew that God's protection was there. I did not know what was going to happen to us, but I knew that whatever happened to us, God was in control, God was sovereign, and God would take care of us. But I often wonder, what if God had not spared us on that day? What if something dangerous would have happened to us? Would God cease to be good by allowing something bad to happen to us? Would God have somehow failed us if for some reason we got attacked or whatever? Is God, is God a God who owes us an easy life? 
Does God owe us an easy life? Last week we talked about comforts. Does God ever owe us comfort? Are we ever called to be comfortable in this world? No, he doesn't. He's a powerful God. He's a sovereign God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. And just to be honest with you this morning, there's some things that God does sometimes that we don't understand. We don't understand why he does them. We don't understand the timing of them. We don't understand why something like this would happen in Aurora, Colorado. We don't understand why in one neighborhood the Waldo Canyon fire can destroy one house in Colorado Springs and another house is perfectly fine. Why do these things happen? Is everything random? Is everything just left up to chance or fate? I mean, how is the universe organized? R.C. Sproul has said it many times, there's no maverick molecule roaming around the universe over which God has no control, which brings us to a very important question this morning, understanding God himself. Can anything in this world demon, angel, Satan himself, you or me, can any power or force in this world stop God from accomplishing his purposes? Is there anything in this world that can stop God? And we have to say from the Bible, no, God is absolutely in control. But from our perspective, it's hard to see. Because we don't have privileged information. We can't, we can't pull behind the cosmic curtain and look and see what God is doing in the heavenlies. There are some secret things of God that we just don't know what he's doing. And so we're left with questions. We're left with maybe some fear and doubt and frustration because God has not given us all the information. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things that belong to God that we just don't know about and he's not going to share that information with us and if you think if there was one person on this planet that God should be fair to wouldn't it be Paul I mean Paul was a missionary Paul was a church planner Paul was obedient to Jesus Paul discipled many Paul preached to thousands if there was one person that should get a free pass in this life and have an easy road shouldn't it be Paul shouldn't Paul's life just be handed to him on a silver platter I mean come on he's Paul Now, have we been reading Acts carefully the past few weeks? And I didn't ask the question very accurately, did I? How did I ask the question? If there's someone that God should be what? Fair to. (laughs) Do we want God to be fair? Who wants God to be fair? If we wanted God to be fair, what would happen? All of us would end up in hell. If we wanted God to be fair. God was not fair with Paul, quote-unquote, But God is just, God is merciful, God is loving, and God may take us on a winding road, a bumpy road, a valley road, a hard road to get us to where he wants us to be. It may take some time in the valley. I encourage you to go back and read the Valley of Vision. It's a a book of Puritan prayers. We've we've sung some songs from the Valley of Vision. Um, I don't have time to read to you the poem, but you can go online and get it. Um, You can go to the bookstore and get the Valley of Vision, but it's, it's really a great collection of Puritan prayers that talk about God's power and his, his grace and how sometimes when we're in the valley, we don't quite see things the way God wants us to see them, but we know that that being in the valley is sometimes where God puts us. And so we come to chapter 23 this morning. And if you remember what happened last week in Acts, uh, Paul was confronted by an infuriated mob that wanted to kill him. And then this intervening ruler says, no, let's get you out of this mess. 
and I'll let you go out and give your testimony. So Paul gives his testimony, and, and then after he gives his testimony, they're even more upset, and they want to kill him even more. And so uh, this, this, this leader takes him back to the barracks and says, well, let's question you by flogging. You remember they were going to flog Paul, and Paul says, ha-ha, I've got a birth certificate. I'm a Roman citizen. And they said, okay, uh, that changes everything. And so we get to the story this morning. We pick up where Paul is going to address his accusers. He's in Jerusalem. This is the last time he will be in Jerusalem. The town where we found out last week, Jesus said to him, you'll be persecuted here. They're going to hate you here. This is, Jesus, this is Paul's one last time to, to confront his accusers in Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story where he goes before the Sanhedrin, he goes before the council, and he addresses them. Now I'm going to do something a little different with my sermon this morning because this is a lot of narrative. I'm going to, we're going to read the scriptures and I'm going to make a few comments as we go along, but really at the end of my message, I'm going to try to draw out some implications and some applications for us that I think is really more important than, 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 than what we need to spend time on just going through the text. But we will go through the text. So let's pick up right where we left off last week, which is really back in verse 30 of chapter 22. So that's where we're going to start out. Chapter 22, verse 30. Paul comes out to address his accusers. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Chapter 23, verse 1, And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Don't you love Paul? Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisee party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Okay, Paul is laying out his case. And he basically says, I'm innocent. I'm keeping my conscience clear. And that was an act of blasphemy because they thought that he was blaspheming the temple. They thought that he was being disobedient to God. So they strike him. And Paul says, you whitewashed wall. Very similar to what Jesus called the Pharisees back in, in Matthew 23, uh, 27 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And, and it was a capital offense in Exodus 22.8 to strike a high priest. And so Paul backtracks and realizes what he's done and basically apologizes. And so you've got this, this moment where Paul just kind of flies off the handle. Now, it's interesting. When Jesus was on trial and he was struck, he was like a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not open up his mouth. 
but Paul is not Jesus. Paul is a man like you and I, and he kind of flew off the handle. But then when he realized that when he was talking to um, the high priest, he calmed down and submitted to the ruling authority. And I wonder, how often do we say bad things against people who are in charge? Don't raise your hands on this, but how many of you ever said anything negative against your boss? You've ever cursed somebody who's in control. How many of you, and I'm being very honest here myself, being very transparent, how many of you have said something very negatively or blasphemous, maybe not blasphemous, against our president? Now, as Vody Bauckham would say, if you don't say amen, you ought to say ouch. I may not agree with all the things the president does, and I may not like the things the president does, but we as Christians are called to obey the governing rulers and have respect for the office of the president. And in the midst of being, being abused here, Paul still submits to the leaders. It's an amazing thing. I find it very amazing. And so what Paul does is he sees an opportunity to divide his audience because you had Sadducees on one hand. The Sadducees, they were the liberals. They were the open-minded ones. They were more aristocratic. They basically didn't believe in the miraculous. They didn't believe in angels or demons or the resurrection. And then you had the religious fundamentalists, the, the Pharisees, who were the more um, strict to the law. And they, they did believe in miracles and they did believe in the resurrection. And Paul says, I'm here because of the resurrection of the dead. And he got them fighting against each other and so much so that there was such a clamor that he was about to be um, torn into pieces. And what does this Roman leader do again? A second time, this pagan Roman leader says, we got to get Paul out of the situation, pulls Paul back into the barracks. And in verse 11, we find something very interesting. Jesus himself shows up to Paul and comforts him. This is the second time in Acts that Jesus himself has shown up to Paul in the face of persecution. What does he say? Red letters. Take courage. Take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify to me in Rome. Keep your courage up, Paul. Keep on being courageous. Don't back down. Now, in Corinth, if you remember, Paul was kind of distressed. Paul was distraught. Jesus showed up to Paul back in Acts 18, 9 through 10, when he was in Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. So Jesus comforts him. We'll come back to verse 11. That's a very important verse. Probably the key verse in this passage. We'll come back to it. But let's continue to see how the Jews hatch this plot to kill Paul. They're going to hatch a plot. They want Paul killed. And they go to some very extreme measures to do it. So let's continue reading. Let's look at verses 12 through 15. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat or drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Forty of these Jewish leaders make a pact. What kind of pact is it? We're not going to eat or drink until Paul is killed. It's a serious vow. It's very paradoxical because they're sitting there accusing Paul of breaking the law. And what are they doing? They're taking this massive vow to break an even greater law. What's one of the Ten Commandments you shouldn't break? Thou shalt not murder. And they're plotting to murder Paul. And so they basically have this plot. plot. Oh, just go down and say, we need to question Paul some more. Get him out in the open and we'll take him down a side street and we'll lie in ambush and when he comes close, we'll lynch mob him and kill him. And we won't rest. We won't eat or drink anything until he is killed. 
40 vehement men want to kill him. But there's something interesting that happens next. This, this, is, this is a very interesting part of the, the story because it's almost as if something just happens out of the blue. Now, are there any such thing as coincidences? No. God's invisible hand of grace is always moving behind the scenes to orchestrate things to his desired end, and we see that right here. Let's see how the plot is exposed. Let's continue reading. Verse 16. Now, the son of Paul's sister, never knew how Paul had a sister, but here we go. The son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going inside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire something more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they've killed him. And now they're ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Out of the blue, we find out Paul has a sister. Paul has a nephew, and it just so happens that this nephew finds out about this plot and goes and tells the tribune, and so the plot is exposed by this nephew that shows up on the scene. We never hear about him again. He leaves just like that. And that's a very interesting turn of events that God would just orchestrate this nephew that we've never heard of to find out about this plot. Somehow he had the inside track. He goes, gets the ear of the tribune. And then what we find out next is even more amazing. The plot is prevented. What does this Roman leader, Claudius Lysias, do about it for one man? What does he do with one man, Paul? Well, here we go. Verse 23. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen, can you do the math there? How many is it? 470 troops for one man. And go as far as Caesarea to the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon him with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Left out some information there to make yourself look good, but that's okay. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Anapatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Now, this is an amazing thing. Paul is one guy, right? And there's 40 guys against Paul. So what does this Roman tribune say he's going to do? Let's get 470 men. That was half of the garrison in Jerusalem to escort Paul out of town because these 40 men, is that 12 times bigger? 470 is almost 12 times bigger than these 40 men. And he goes all the way to Anapatris, which is about halfway to Caesarea. Caesarea is about 70 miles away. 
Paul is no longer ever going to be in Jerusalem again. He's going to go to Caesarea, and the next three chapters of Acts are going to take place in Caesarea on his way to Rome. He's going to be going through some trials, and then this letter's written, and Paul basically has to stay in Herod's praetorium under house arrest until these guys, as we'll see next week, are going to come down and accuse him again. There's an amazing turn of events, this out-of-the-blue nephew that just shows up, this governor deciding to send half of his garrison to escort Paul, this Jewish mob that wants to kill him. And so here's the bottom line this morning. No plan or purpose of God can be thwarted. No plan or purpose of God can be stopped. God is sovereign and will accomplish his will. Let me just give you some passages in the Old Testament that speak about God being a powerful, sovereign God. Psalm 33, 8 through 11. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That should give you comfort this morning. Psalm 135, verse 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes. Daniel 4, 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. We could just stop right there and go home and say, okay, God's sovereign, cool, he can do whatever he wants. But I think that where we struggle is the personal application of that. Where does the rubber meet the road in our personal experience and God's power and his sovereignty? How do those two things come together? And I want you to notice something that happens in verse 11. Let's go back to our text here. Because Jesus says something, and and I'm going to do something I haven't often done in a while. I'm going to teach you a little bit of Greek this morning, okay? So don't get bored or tune me out, but here we go. Verse 11. The following night, the Lord said to him, and the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you, what does it say there? Must testify also in Rome. You must. Little Greek word, day. That word must is very important. It means it is a divine necessity. You cannot but do this, Paul. It is a preordained, predetermined plan of God that you must go to Rome and do this. It must happen. It will happen. I will ensure that it happens. You must go to Rome. It's interesting how this word also shows up in the Bible elsewhere. When Jesus speaks of his death on the cross, going to the cross, he speaks of it as it is a done deal. It must happen. It will, in fact, happen. We see this in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must, same word, go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He must go and die on the cross and be raised again. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this shall ever happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get up behind me, Satan, for you're a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, 
Don't try to mess up God's plan. It must happen. You're trying to mess with God's ordained plan. Luke 9, 22. Jesus said the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This must happen. John 3, 14 through 15, right before John 3, 16. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. We see from the scriptures that Jesus says the cross and the resurrection must take place. These things will, in fact, take place. There's going to be things that are going to try to stop it, try to thwart it, try to get in the way, but they must take place. Now, you may be asking a question at this point. If these things must take place, what's the human responsibility in it all? How how do human um, interaction deal with this? Does it mean that that, that people aren't responsible, that there's there's no human responsibility? No. Let me ask you a couple questions. Who betrayed Jesus with a kiss? Judas. Is he responsible and is he accountable? Yes. Who put Jesus on trial? The Jews. Are they responsible? Are they accountable? Yes. Who sentenced Jesus to death on the cross? Pilate. Is he responsible? Is he accountable? Yes. Who actually nailed Jesus to that wooden cross? Roman soldiers. They are accountable. They are responsible. They are accountable. They are responsible. They carried out the action, but behind it all, who's the one saying that it must happen? God. God is ordaining it all. And you may say, well, how do you know that, Sean? Well, we've already seen it in Acts, but I want to show you two other places where in the book of Acts we find out that the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ was God's predetermined plan that it would happen. Nothing could stop it. Nothing could thwart it. Nothing could come against it. Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It sounds to me like it's a done deal. It's a definite plan in the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? People. Who killed Jesus? God. Which one is it? God or people? Yes. Who's responsible? God or people? Yes. People are responsible. People are accountable. But behind it all, who's ordaining it to happen? God. Look at Acts 4, 27 through 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod. Okay, is Herod responsible? Yes. Pontius Pilate, is he responsible? Yes. Along with the Gentiles, are the Gentiles responsible? Yes. The peoples of Israel, are the Jews responsible? Yes. To do whatever your hand and your plan had what? Predestined to take place. So God is infallibly orchestrating his will to happen behind the scenes. Ephesians 1.11 says that he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, it gets very personal for Paul because Jesus goes to Paul and says, Paul, you must testify to me in Rome. You're testifying to me here in Jerusalem, but you must go to Rome. And Paul's probably thinking to himself, how am I going to get there? I'm in a, I'm in a, in a prison in Jerusalem. How, how can this be a done deal? How can I do it? And Paul realizes that if you read the rest of the book of Acts, as we will see in a few weeks, he goes through three trials and a dangerous sea voyage to eventually get to Rome. Now, think about it. I've been thinking about this for a moment. What would happen if Paul just waltzed into Rome one day and did like he did in Corinth or Ephesus and started planting churches and ministering to people and preaching the gospel and discipling? He could have done that, couldn't he have? But he hasn't gotten to Rome yet. How is he going to get to Rome? He's going to have to go through trial 
after trial after trial. But who is he going to be exposed to? Some of the highest leaders in all of the land. So Paul had a plan maybe to walk into Rome and start church planning, but God said, no, you're going to go through three trials and a dangerous sea voyage to get there, and this is my plan because you may have more influence this way because you're going to be talking to the highest echelons of people to get you into the Roman area so that when you get to Rome, you've had an audience. may not have been the way Paul had planned it, but God had a different plan for him. So let me ask you a question. Does God just work things out in nice, neat, straight lines? I would drive you crazy if I had a whiteboard up here and I drew a circle and I didn't close the circle. How many of you would be like anal and like, he's not closing the circle. He's not doing it. Does God often close the circle? Does God often take us just no bumps in the road, no problems, no issues. We just get point A to point B and it's just like that. It's very easy. Now, maybe sometimes in your life, God may just clear the road and you get there very easily. But in my experience, God sometimes takes you down winding paths, takes you through valleys, takes you on bumps in the road, takes you through these things to get you where he wants to be. And he does those things. What have we seen in Paul's life so far that God is doing? Can can God's plan be stopped for Paul? Can a Jewish mob that wants to kill him stop God's plan for Paul? No. Does a pagan Gentile ruler intervene just out of the blue and help Paul? Yes. What happens when this nephew of Paul just out of the blue shows up and begins to help Paul? God's behind that. And think about this. Paul got escorted out of Jerusalem at 9 o'clock at night by half of the garrison. Now, God's ways are mysterious. I will be the first at the front of the line to say, I don't understand everything God does. And I'm thankful for that because I'm not God. You're not God. And we sometimes just have our jaws dropped and we say, you got me. I don't know. But let me give you a a passage of scripture that's a very good encouragement to a lot of us, but it's probably the most misunderstood and the misapplied verse that we quote as Christians. It's a very, very popular one. It's on on mugs, coffee mugs, it's on bumper stickers. You, You probably have this somewhere in your house on a bookmarker. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now let me address three issues related to this passage of scripture to clarify some things, okay? First of all, this promise is only for believers. It's for those who love God and who've been called according to his purpose. This is not a blank check for those who are not believers that everything's gonna turn out the way they want them to. This is a promise for Christians. Only Christians can claim this promise. Secondly, God is the one who causes all things to work together for good. Now, we don't cause the things to work together for good. God is the one that does it. Yes, do we make decisions? Yes, are we part of the process? Yes, but God is the one that makes all things in the end work out for good. But here's the third one that I think is very, very difficult for us to grasp. God's definition of good and our definition of good may not be the same thing. It doesn't say all things turn out good in the way that I define good. It just says God works all things for good. And as God, he gets the right to define what good is. Now let's ask you a question. Is getting struck in the mouth by the high priest good for Paul? Is getting flogged good for Paul? Is being in prison and having to go through three trials good for Paul? Is having a dangerous sea voyage good for Paul? We would all say, no, that's not good. But what does God say? I'm working it out for the good for you to get to Rome to be able to present the gospel. And guess what, Paul? You're going to die by beheading. Good, right? In our humanistic, self-centered way, we would say, 
No, those things aren't good. They're stressful. They're uncomfortable. They don't feel good. By the way, just a side note, this is not my notes. Don't always trust your feelings. Okay? I'm thinking of that old song from the 70s. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. Well, there's a lot more than feelings. There's God's word, and God defines what is good. And so here's the issue. Let me say this loud and clear. Let me say it very loud and clear. What's more important to you, your happiness and comfort or the advancement of the gospel for the glory of Christ? What's more important? Oftentimes, we elevate our happiness, our comfort. We elevate all these things above the glory of Christ and the advancement of the gospel, and that's ultimately what God had in mind for Paul. That was, that was Paul's issue. Paul, you must get to Rome. Why do you need to get to Rome? So that you can testify to the gospel of the grace for the glory of God. And I'm going to get you there some weird ways. You're going to go through some trials. You're going to go through a weird sea voyage. But you must get there. And it's not about you, Paul. It's not about your comfort. It's not about your happiness. It's about my plan for you to get you there so that you can open your mouth and testify to the gospel of Christ for the glory of God, no matter what the cost. Did Paul ever, break, uh, did Paul ever back down? What are the two responses Paul faces here in this chapter 23? Two responses. One is animosity. Okay, they want to kill him. They want to flog him. Forty men are taking a vow. They hate him. Newsflash. If you preach the gospel or you talk about Jesus or you live for the glory of Christ, people will hate you. There will be animosity. I feel it every week. No pastor wants to stand up here and say, thus says the Lord, and preach the whole counsel of God's word because there's some people that just flat out aren't going to like what I have to say. And so it's an occupational hazard of being a pastor to preach the whole counsel of God's word because when you open your mouth and talk about Jesus, there's going to be people that just flat out don't like it. There's going to be animosity, and we need to expect that. There's going to be animosity. But secondly, not only animosity, there's ambivalence. Not once do we ever find out that Claudius Lysias or these 470 troops really cared about what Paul was doing. They were just doing their job. They were just good citizens going about their business, doing their daily thing. We could care less what Paul has to say. Okay, we'll escort him, but we won't listen to him. We don't care about him. We're just doing our daily grind. They're not animo- they're not, they're not, they don't express animosity towards you. They just don't care. You're going to get both responses, people that hate you and people that don't care. And that puts us in a weird predicament, doesn't it? <laughs> you that people don't care are people that hate you. Gee, thanks, this is what I signed up for. I want to go through the rest of my life declaring the gospel of Jesus and living for his glory. Ultimately, what's at stake here is the advancement of the gospel. The advancement of the gospel. And God's plan to get the gospel to Rome cannot be stopped. Now, think about God's, the advancement of the gospel in our lives. If we as a church exist and you as a Christian exist to get the gospel out to as many people as we can, to advance the gospel, to go to unreached people groups like we do in India, to share with your neighbor, to share with your friend, to share with your coworker, to, to declare the gospel, to share the gospel, to live for Jesus so that the gospel can be on display, do you think, do you think that you're going to be any different than Paul? Are you going to be opposed? You bet. Is there going to be ambivalence? You bet. Will there be animosity? You bet. Will it be comfortable? Not you bet. Probably not. Does God owe us a free ride with no bumps in the road? And it got me thinking this week. Okay, we've looked at all these things that happened to Paul. Ambivalence, animosity, imprisonment, flogging. 
let's not be comfortable, let's just go through life willing to suffer. And you have to stop at this point in this sermon series, like I did, and ask a very important question. Then why in the world do we do it? Have you ever thought about that? Why risk all for the gospel? Why risk all for Jesus? Why be willing to head a culture face on that doesn't want to hear our message? Why do it? The world probably thinks we're the craziest, stupidest, weirdest people. Why would you live for Jesus if nobody's going to like the message you have, if people are going to be ambivalent, if there's going to be animosity? Why in the world do you do it? Now, there's an easy question. It's the most important answer to that question. We do it because we're commanded to do it. And we could just stop and fold up our Bible and say, God said we do it, so we do it. And that's perfectly right and good. But most of us here are not motivated by sheer obedience to God's word. Just be honest with you. You're not not motivated because God said, I got to do it. Okay, I'm going to do it. That really motivates me. What motivates you to suffer all for the gospel? What pushes you to reach unreached people groups? What gives you the fuel to go to your neighbor and say, I got to tell you about Jesus? What gives you the stamina to remain steadfast in a culture that looks down your, that breathes down your neck and says, what you're believing is crazy? What motivates you to do that? Well, Paul answers that question. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians for just a moment. Turn over a few books. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And Paul gives us the answer of what motivates us, what challenges us, what fuels us, what pushes us, what gives us the passion, what gives us the desire. Why do it, Christian? Why stand up for Jesus? Why love Jesus? Why live for Jesus? Why declare the gospel of Jesus? Why be willing to to suffer all for the glory of Jesus? Well, because I have to. Yes, you have to, but there's more. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now go down to verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we have a ministry of reconciling, uh, of going and sharing the gospel so that people can hear, so they can be reconciled to God. That is, Christ, in Christ, God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we've been entrusted with this message to go out and share the gospel. Therefore, we're ambassadors. We go in God's name. We go represent Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We've been um, ambassadors, we've been charged, we've been commissioned, we've been told to go tell people they can be reconciled to God. We share the gospel, we present Jesus Christ in front of them. But what motivates us to do that? What does Paul say in verse 14? The love of Christ controls us. Bad application of that okay a lot of people look at that and think it's it's my love for jesus that motivates me to do that not in the greek text it's not your love for jesus that motivates you it's the other way around it's jesus's love for you that motivates you to go do that 
Yours might say controls. Your mind says my constraints. Actually, there's two ways you can look at that. One way in the original language, it means it propels you out to go share the gospel with people. But the real translation says Jesus' love enfolds you and holds you tight and squeezes you in so that you have so much of Jesus that you just want to go share him with other people. That's the motivation. One translation says this, it leaves us no choice but to go share Jesus. So here's the motivation. Why do you do it? When you are blown away by the amazing love of Christ for you, when you think about the sewer out of which he saved you, when you think about the fact that he's made you a new creation, when you think about the fact that you were dead and he's made you alive, he's caused you to be born again, he's forgiven your sins, he's given you a home in heaven, he's given you peace in your heart, when you think about the amazing love of God for you in Jesus Christ, that fuels your heart to say, I've got to share this because he is worth it. He's amazing. He's awesome. There was a panel discussion a few years ago between R.C. Sproul and John Piper. And R.C. Sproul was doing the, the chair analogy. You've heard the chair analogy. You put a, put a chair up here and say, do you, do you believe that this chair will hold you up? You've probably all seen that. You can look at the chair and you can, you can have intellectual faith in the chair that the chair is going to hold you up. And until you actually sit in the chair, you haven't exercised saving faith because you've got to trust that the chair can hold you up. And then when you sit in the chair, the chair will hold you up. And we've all seen that illustration, right? Before saving faith means to, to actually put your trust in Jesus, and he, he waxed on eloquent R.C. Sproul about the chair. And then John Piper looked at him and asked a very weird question. Is the chair beautiful? In other words, yeah, Jesus can be a utilitarian chair that we sit in because he's sovereign. But is he beautiful in the sense that we're captivated by Christ and desire to come to Christ because we can't help but do that because he is so beautiful. He is so captivating. He is so mesmerizing. He is so wonderful. Is the chair beautiful, R.C. Sproul? And R.C. Sproul sheepishly looked at John Piper and said, yes, the chair is beautiful. Jesus is both sovereign and beautiful. He is both powerful and loving. He is both king and compassionate. And when you come to Christ, you take him as your all in all. You take him as the king of kings, the one who has all authority, all sovereignty, but you also take him as, as the one who loves you, who, who saves you, who redeems you, and you're enthralled with him, and you're mesmerized by him, and, and no plan of his can be thwarted this morning. And so here's the issue. Paul says, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And so here's my plea to you this morning. Jesus Christ stands with arms open wide, ready to receive, ready to reconcile, ready to forgive, ready ready to cleanse any sinner in this room that would come to him and repent of them, their sins and bow before Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you. I love you. I need you. I can't help but have you. I trust in you. And Jesus says, I will not cast you out. Please come. Come to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So Paul pleads and says, be reconciled to God. And here's the amazing truth about God's sovereignty in this whole thing of no plan of his can be thwarted. No plan of God can be thwarted. Nothing can stop God's plan. He's going to do what he's going to do. He's going to accomplish his will. He's going to do everything he set out to do in eternity past. Everything that God has on his timetable, he will accomplish. But here's the beautiful thing about it. He uses clueless, weak, stupid, incompetent people like us to, to help him do it. I don't know about you, but it's a powerful and a humbling blessing. And you think that the God of the universe calls us and says, you're ambassadors, 
You are ambassadors to a dying world that needs to know me. And you're to go and you're to share the love and the truth of Christ and you're to implore men and women and boys and girls to be reconciled to God. And you do that not because you have to do that. You do that because you want to do it because you've received the same love yourself. You can't help but tell people about the love, the beautiful, glorious Savior. And you know that when you do that, no plan of God's will be thwarted. I wouldn't serve a God who didn't win in the end. Does God win in the end? Hopefully you've read Revelation. If you haven't, go back and read it. We're on the winning team. God wins. God is glorious. God is powerful. But he's also beautiful and worthy of all our worship. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And if you are here this morning, maybe you walked into this place and you have no idea who I am, you have no idea what we're all about, you maybe read a few Bible passages in your life, but you've never, you've never really been confronted with who Jesus is, his love, his power, his grace. And you know in your heart of hearts as you're sitting there that you're under strong conviction and the Holy Spirit's pounding in your heart, showing you your need for a Savior, showing you that you are a sinner. And the Bible says today's the day of salvation repent and believe in Jesus. So there may be some of you this morning that need to just cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I confess that you are Lord. I trust in what you did on the cross. I believe you rose again. I repent of my sin. I hate my sin. I grieve over my sin. I come to you as my only hope. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my religion. I'm not trusting in my good deeds. I'm casting myself totally at you because I have nothing to offer you except for my sin and only that can be be cleansed by you, Jesus. I come to you as my king, my glorious king, for the very first time. Maybe some of you in this room who just need to realize that God may be taking you through something this week or this month or this year. It's a bumpy road, a route that may not be the route you would have chosen. The circumstances may not be lined up on your timetable, but God works all things out for his good may not feel good right now, but it, God's working it out for good. And his definition of good is a whole lot better than our definition of good. So spend some time trusting in him this morning, maybe just coming to him as the, as the one that can only give you peace in your heart. And so whatever you need to do this morning in the quietness of this moment, spend some time praying, trusting, receiving what God has for you this morning. This morning is our great God knowing that only you can save, only you can sanctify, only you can do a work in our hearts. And I pray for any lost person in this place this morning that's never trusted in Jesus. They've never seen the glory and the majesty and the beauty and the power and the sovereignty and the grace and the love. And for the very first time, they're confronted with a holy God and, the, and, and they're, they're, they're just overwhelmed by the sense of their own sinfulness. Would they see the greatness of their sin, but also see the greatness of a Savior that can take away that sin? And Father, for us who are believers, may we be not motivated by guilt, but motivated by love. Your love for us, would that fuel us to go share that love with others? Lord, we've been given a, a sacred trust. We've been given the greatest gift in the world, our salvation. Why in the world would we want to hide it? Why would we not want to share it? Why would we not want to broadcast it? Why would we, We're so fearful, Lord, 
Why are we fearful of a message that can change lives? Show us your great love for us and use that as a way to motivate us to go share that love with others for the glory of, the, of you and the advancement of the gospel. Thank you that no plan or purpose of yours can be thwarted, that you win in the end, and that, God, we're just your servants. Pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.